Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're back in Rome for what might very well be the last time we cover the rule of Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Unless I find something really interesting to talk about with the other Julio-Claudians, could maybe see it with Caligula, maybe not... Augustus will most likely be the man I will end up having covered the most out of all of them, and rightfully so, as I'll explain later in the episode. But we do need to move things along, and as much as he would have probably liked to be, Augustus was not immortal, and Rome very much had other emperors with their own stories that are worth telling. Unless this is your first Julio-Claudian episode, in which case I highly recommend you stop listening and go back to listen to the others, we know that Tiberius is the next emperor, and his rule in Rome is almost just as important as Augustus's time as emperor. The transition from father to adopted son marked a massive change for Rome that had not been seen in centuries, if the stories of the legendary kings of Rome are true, that is. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're picking up back in the early 1st century CE of Rome in Caesar Immortal. On the 19th of August in the year 14 CE, Imperator Caesar Augustus passed away in the town of Nola, the same location where his biological father had died almost 72 years earlier. Caesar is dead. Long live Caesar Augustus. Okay, so maybe we should back up just a bit before we actually get to Augustus's death. Is that cheap? Yeah, maybe, but it's what I'm doing anyway. I have covered the main highlights of Augustus's time as princeps slash emperor of Rome, but never actually covered the different laws and systems he put into place during his 40-ish years of rule. So that's what we'll be doing in what is technically the background history lesson for this episode. He completely restructured Rome almost completely from the ground up. And because he had 40 years to work with all of this, it's no surprise that he accomplished a lot. So let's first look at how he changed the actual city of Rome, specifically when it came to order within his city. Well, he created both police officers and firefighters for Rome. I covered this new group, the Vigiles, way back in episode 11 over Nero and the Great Fire of Rome, so let's do a quick rundown of their duties as a refresher. Originally, Rome's firefighting system was privately owned, but this system sucked, and Augustus very much knew this to be the case. He created a new system of 6,000 firefighters and divvied them up into seven different cohorts, with each cohort further divided into smaller manageable units. At this time, the Vigiles, at least those that weren't officers, were all slaves, though by the time they were disbanded in the 4th century CE, the Vigiles were made up of free citizens. Their main goal was to patrol the streets at night and put out fires. In 27 BCE, Augustus also expanded the Vigiles' duties so that they would act as a police force. Now, it was also their job to catch thieves and runaway slaves, as well as stopping other petty crimes. Augustus also greatly expanded the Roman military. 
By the time of his death, the Roman army was made up of 28 legions, up from 20 at the beginning of his reign, spread across Europe, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. And with this massive new army came massive overhauls to the way both people and information traveled. Augustus dumped massive funding into infrastructure in order to build roads all across the empire. He also created an official courier system which was overseen by the military. Another group that Augustus created that we'll go further into into future episodes was the Praetorian Guard, the private bodyguards of the Emperor. Augustus also created a more balanced tax system for the Empire. The previous consuls and other politicians of Rome had previously set arbitrary tax rates for the different provinces. Augustus recognized that every province, even though many had been subjugated by force, was part of one great big Rome. Sure, there were slaves that were treated like dirt, but he ensured that the citizens of the empire were at least treated as equals. Besides using taxes to fund the military and road construction, Augustus is known for his many, many building projects. The emperor decided he would begin the new age of Rome as a city of marble. Yeah, it had been used during the Republic, but Augustus's new Rome would see marble used for just about everything. Political centers, bathhouses, temples. That last one is very important. Augustus knew the importance of religion for the common citizens of Rome. Many of his building projects were actually either renovating or building new temples to the gods of the Roman pantheon, obviously in shiny brand new white marble. Also, believe it or not, Augustus was the first Roman leader to unite Italy under one name, the province of Italia. In 7 BCE, Augustus finally decided that the Italians should be considered one group instead of many different smaller political units. And because Italia held Rome, obviously most of Augustus's projects would be centered around that province. It's because of this that Augustus has been called the father of Italy. Finally, and somewhat bouncing off of the idea of being father of a nation, Augustus was kind of a man of the people. Augustus had been a member of the Populares faction before ascending as princeps slash emperor, the Populares being the members of the senate who were all about the laws of the people rather than the laws of the upper class. He knew what the commoners wanted. He wasn't always able to keep his people happy, but he was able to unite them and provide for them to the point where he was worshipped as a god during his own lifetime. And on top of that, Augustus didn't completely alienate the Senate in favor of the people. Even though they were slowly becoming obsolete due to the powers the Emperor had amassed, Augustus still took time to defer to the Senate even if sometimes it was just for show. Was he perfect? No, not to sound like a teacher who's giving you an A- minus on a paper, but nobody's perfect. But Augustus, along with the help of people like Marcus Agrippa and his wife Livia, had found a way to preserve Rome from collapsing under the weight of so many civil wars. Would the city have survived? Yeah, probably. Would the Republic and its territories? Maybe not. Augustus's rule ensured that society didn't collapse. It's just unfortunate that he was able to do so by creating a system that could never survive properly without someone like him to control it.
let's step back a couple years. At the end of the last Julio-Claudian episode, I had ended it with Tiberius being adopted and essentially put in place as Augustus' successor. However, he was still just the son of the Emperor, at least in the eyes of the public. He was no Marcus Agrippa, who might as well have been co-princeps. Luckily, like Agrippa, Tiberius was a war hero. In fact, from 10 to 12 CE, Tiberius was campaigning in Germania. Upon his return from Germania, Tiberius was rewarded with a military triumph, a massive parade celebrating his excellence. Now that he was even more of a public hero and in the public eye, Augustus had the Senate grant Tiberius power equal to that of Augustus. Now there would be no hesitation over what would happen when the Emperor died. Tiberius would become the new ruler of Rome. And now for Augustus. In August of 14 CE, Augustus was 75 years old. Despite his age, the Empire still beheld him as a father rather than a grandfather. This was mostly due to the fact that Augustus never let anyone depict him as older than he was when he became the princeps. The life expectancy of ancient Rome is weird to calculate. Technically, it was actually only around 30 years old. However, surviving infancy was a challenge in and of itself, and if you made it to adulthood, your life expectancy drastically increased. However, many men within the Empire were also soldiers, meaning you had a high likelihood of dying in battle. This is all to say that Augustus had lived a nice, long life for a citizen of Rome, and that's not even considering the fact that he had been chronically ill for almost 40 years of his life, if not longer. But even with the gift of a nice long life, there is quite a decent percentage of historians who believe that when Augustus planned a visit to his villa in Nola, he did not plan on coming back to Rome alive. What we know for sure is that he died on August 19th. It's generally agreed that he died from natural causes. Like I said, he was old and sickly. But how about we take a look at a couple conspiracy theories just for the heck of it. Augustus had been traveling with Livia, so Roman historians tend to point to Augustus' own wife murdering him with poison. The people who spread this rumor are thought to be those who preferred Augustus' grandson Agrippa Posthumus as the rightful heir to the imperial throne. It could have also been Tiberius' political rivals who started that rumor. Could an emperor be legitimate if his mother murdered the last emperor? I mean, yeah, but that's besides the point. Livia is the unfortunate punching bag of the Julio-Claudian saga who gets a far worse rep than she deserves. It all goes back to her wanting Tiberius on the throne. Her son was already in position to succeed, Augustus just needed to be out of the way. But let's say that Livia killed her husband, but not out of malicious intent. I mentioned earlier that some people believe Augustus essentially scheduled his visit to Nola so that he could die. There's a theory that Livia offered her husband poison as a form of assisted suicide. Augustus has two phrases attributed as his final words. One said in public, and another that was allegedly said in the privacy of his own home. Publicly, Augustus' final words were, 
Behold, I found Rome of clay and leave her to you of marble. As I said, marble was the literal building block of Augustus's new empire, but it also paints a picture of leaving Rome sturdier than it had been after the death of Julius Caesar and the ensuing civil wars. Privately, Augustus's alleged last words were, Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. In his own autobiography, which, granted, is heavily biased towards the image of himself the Emperor wanted to portray, Augustus acted as a humble servant to the newly formed Empire. If we believe the words, though, he never sought glory, instead having it thrust upon him by the people and the Senate. In death, he could finally stop playing the role of Emperor and just go back to being Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. As I'm sure you can guess, there was a massive funeral held for Caesar Augustus. All businesses, private and public alike, were closed for a day of mourning. At the funeral, both Tiberius and his biological son Drusus gave eulogies to the fallen emperor. Very soon afterwards, Augustus was officially deified as a god within the Roman pantheon. Though his physical form was gone and buried, he would forever live on as the immortal founder and father of the Roman Empire. Tiberius would not become Emperor of Rome until one month after the death of his adopted father, ascending to the throne on September 17th, 14 CE. Like his predecessors, Tiberius acted humble when approached to fulfill the duty he had been handed. However, unlike both Julius Caesar and Augustus, it's much easier to believe that Tiberius's humility was genuine. No matter how he would feel about the position later on, which, spoiler alert, was a very mixed bag of feelings, many historians are willing to believe he really didn't want to be emperor. Despite that, he did already have the power of an emperor. He had been Augustus's equal before the first emperor passed away. His humility was also probably affected by the fact that Tiberius was 54 years old when he became emperor. Augustus had been in his 30s when he defeated Mark Antony. He still had time to be a youthful leader who could lead the charge in Rome's conquests. Tiberius, even though he had just been campaigning in Germania for several years, recognized that he was not the same man as his adopted father. Indeed, Tiberius wasn't Augustus. Augustus was a man who, despite suggesting he was simply playing a part, was always open with his feelings towards things. Even when his rulings on things seemed unfair, people usually knew his decision was coming, such as all the exiles he enacted on his extended family. Tiberius was a more internal man. His gifts were his mind and his patience. Not mind like mathematics or science, but tactics. After all, he had been a military officer. And just like a well-executed military strike to destroy the enemy in one fell swoop, when Tiberius sought retribution, it seemingly came out of nowhere. Before he was allowed to join Augustus's side, Tiberius had sent himself into self-imposed exile on the island of Rhodes. It's recorded that he spent much of his time there engaging in philosophical discussions with Greek philosophers. 
Well, there's a story that says that one day Tiberius and another man got into a heated argument. At least the other man was heated. Instead of getting mad and running his mouth, Tiberius just left the lecture hall. He was seen returning home only later to come back with a group of guards who threw the young man in jail. Unexpected, but ruthless. It was actions like this that defined the first year of Tiberius's reign. Augustus had exiled both Agrippa Posthumus, his grandson, and Julia the Elder, his only biological child and the second wife of Tiberius. The reasons for their exiles were well known. Posthumus was said to be a violent young man, though in reality he was probably dealing with mental illness or cognitive disabilities, and Julia was well known for sleeping around, which in Augustus's eyes brought shame to the family. Before Augustus's death and Tiberius's ascension, Posthumus was discovered to have been killed. It's believed that this was ordered by Tiberius in order to ensure that his early days would go smoothly. Political rivals could seek to elevate Augustus's grandson into a position to usurp Tiberius's power. Tiberius would speak directly to the Senate, telling them that he had no hand in Posthumus's murder, but there was almost no way the young man's death was not politically motivated. And as for Julia, we know for a fact that Tiberius once more spoke to the Senate and had them approve an extension on Julia's exile, making sure that she would die outside of Rome. He also cut off any supplies she would be receiving, and his stepsister slash second wife ended up dying not long after Tiberius became emperor. Then again, these deaths are also attributed to Livia, aka the one person who could enact any sort of control over the emperor. I think it's about time that Livia Drusilla was allowed to take center stage. She was only a couple years younger than Augustus, meaning Tiberius's mother was also getting pretty high up in age. However, that didn't stop her from trying to get her way by using her son. She had everything she had always wanted. She was the most powerful woman in the empire and her son was in a position that essentially made him a god. And ironically, after the death of Augustus, she had even more power than before. In the late emperor's will, he had split his property between Livia and Tiberius. But along with that, he had done something interesting in basically retconning her life to make her an official member of the Julii family, which was different from just being married into the family. Along with that, she would receive the honorific cognomen Augusta. So technically it would be more appropriate to call her Julia Augusta, but I'll still call her Livia so it doesn't get confusing. Livia was more or less becoming a living goddess in her own right, something that didn't sit quite well with Tiberius. In fact, at one point the Senate had voted to grant her the title Mater Patriae, Mother of the Nation, to mirror the Pater Patriae title that had been granted to Augustus. However, Tiberius stepped in and vetoed the title. It should also be noted that Tiberius refused to be called Pater Patriae, which further adds to his personal sense of humility. Tiberius seemed to be more than well aware that his mother was seeking to basically insert herself as a co-empress of sorts. And even though he didn't want the job, Tiberius was at least strong enough to admit that he could run Rome without his mother. 
I mean, it was also ancient Rome. The masses would not have responded positively to a woman in the high seat of power. Look at how they had responded to Cleopatra. In order to further secure his own sense of power and bring stability to his imperial court, Tiberius ordered that Livia was no longer allowed to sit in on the most important meetings. Despite all that, though, he did give her a position of power among the Vestal Virgins. The Vestals were priestesses to the goddess Vesta, the Roman equivalent to the Greek goddess Hestia, goddess of the hearth and home. These priestesses were seen as one of the cornerstones of Roman society. However, as the name Vestal Virgins suggests, you did have to be a virgin in order to be a priestess to Vesta. But Olivia, despite her diminishing sense of power, was different from any other woman in Rome, with the closest second place belonging to Agrippina the Elder, the daughter of Julia the Elder and Marcus Agrippa. So without the ability to control Rome through her son, Livia began looking for other people who would help her secure sources of power. But that will be a story for a future entry in the Julio-Claudian saga. The early reign of Tiberius went by relatively smoothly, if sometimes a bit rocky. Because Augustus had been the first person in Rome, at least the first in several centuries, to hold full control of Rome and its provinces, it only made sense that Tiberius would try to emulate his adopted father's style of rule. But as I pointed out earlier, Tiberius was no Augustus. He made no grand plans for the empire in terms of expansion, although this was apparently thanks in part to advice Augustus had given Tiberius before his death. He was also more wary of changing the way the provinces were governed and controlled. His fiscal policies were also much more conservative than those of Augustus. He spent so little money that by his death, the empire's treasury contained about 20 times the amount of wealth it had when Tiberius was made emperor. But not all the policies made in Tiberius's reign deserved praise. In 19 CE, he began cracking down on the Jewish population in Rome. Jews had previously been exempt from joining the Roman military, but Tiberius issued a proclamation that all male Jews of appropriate age were to join the army. Any other person of the Jewish faith was to be expelled from the city as quickly as possible or risk imprisonment for life. And even though this wouldn't be a problem until towards the end of his life, Tiberius's proclamation would also extend to the early Christian church. Romans in the early empire, at least during Tiberius's reign, didn't see any real difference between Jews and Christians. To them, Christians were just a weird sect of Judaism. There are some Christian historians writing a couple centuries later who say that Tiberius actually believed Jesus was special and asked the Senate to recognize him as a god, but no, just no, that did not happen. Another poor mark on the early reign of Tiberius was the expansion of what is known as delation. This refers to accusations of crimes, usually from one citizen upon another. Despite Augustus having created a police force, Rome technically still didn't have a solid legal system. If you accused someone of a crime, you could act as the prosecutor in the following trial. 
and if you won that trial, the price paid by the defendant was usually quite a large fee or even a decent chunk of their estate which would be split between the Roman treasury and the prosecutor. The problem with this was that it seems people began to realize that they could just lie about crimes if they could create a good enough case and find evidence. Well, what may be most surprising about the rise in delation was that there was a surprisingly small percentage of the population who were untouchable. How did Tiberius fill the treasury? With the wealth of the nobility who had not managed to escape the grasp of greed. I want to add one final note before we close the first part of our new chapter in the Julio-Claudian saga. The weight of the empire was heavy on Tiberius's shoulders. His life had essentially been manipulated for years which would eventually make him cruel. He couldn't even find it in his heart to love his sons, his biological son Drusus and his adopted son Germanicus. We'll go over Germanicus in the next Julio-Claudian episode, but I want to jump forward to 23 CE. By this point, Tiberius had fully realized he was no Augustus and began stepping back from public life. But it was also in 23 CE that his son Drusus died, most likely having been poisoned by people Tiberius trusted. Drusus' death would be the final nail in the coffin for Tiberius's hopes of remaining a good man. What does that mean? Well, we'll figure that out down the line. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. This episode marks the end of yet another batch of episodes for Royally Screwed, so I will talk to you all again in about a month. If you haven't given a rating or review of the show on whatever platform you use to listen to this, why don't you take a second to do so? It helps give the show momentum during the breaks like the one coming up. Even if you just want to rate it 3 stars and write, eh, it's an okay show, I will gladly accept that. When we come back from the break though, we're going to jump pretty far forward to finally cover someone who was still alive when I was little. It's the story of Diana, Princess of Wales. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.